What would it take for you to be able to work with, well, almost anyone? I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness, the mess, and maybe some of those uncomfortable relationships and connections around us. Michael Bungay Stanya helps people know they're awesome and that they're doing great things. He's best known for his book, The Coaching Habit, which is the best-selling book on coaching this century is a considered absolute classic. It's a tool that I keep coming back to. It is a fantastic resource if you are navigating coaching conversations or want to connect, ask better questions. His most recent book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, and it shows us how to build the best possible relationship with the key people at work. Michael has founded the Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that has trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like in organisations from Microsoft to Gucci. He left Australia about 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent time in London and Boston. Balancing all these moments of success, he was also banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, and you'll hear a little bit about that. He was sued by one of his law school professors for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin romance-esque story involving a misdelivered letter and was called The Mail Delivery. (laughs) This conversation with Michael is delightful. We dive into the power of questions. Michael is an absolute extraordinary world-class person when it comes to asking great questions. And we dive into what does it take to build phenomenal relationships or the best possible relationships, particularly at work. Enjoy this conversation with the thoughtful Michael Bungay Stanya. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Such a delight to be sitting down with you. Before we get into this, I've got a couple of mm-hmm. things I uh, want to check in with you. You've been out on a number of podcasts. When you've had a great podcast interview with someone, <laughs> what's what worked doing, well? Yeah. Well... The interviews that I love are when people at least have some idea of who I am. I've had some interviews where they're like, it's clear you have no idea who I am or what I've written and I'm not entirely sure why we're having a conversation. <laughs> There's one radio interview I did where I go, so what are your thoughts are on the American economy? I'm like... <laughs> Wrong person. <laughs> I, I think you're thinking I'm somebody else entirely. Um, and the other interviews that I find are less fulfilling are the ones that kind of have a pre-prepared list of questions mm-hmm. and we go through them regardless of what my previous answer was. And I'm like, oh man, I left so many interesting <laughs> doorways and alleyways and nooks and crannies and you could pick any one of those to explore and you're just going on your next question on your list. Yeah. And I don't think, I'm not too worried that that's going to happen. So, but good insight. <laughs> uh, and then often when it, you'll notice this, there may well be a moment where I'm like, well, why don't you tell me your answer to that first? Because I like it when there's a kind of shared, yeah. a shared voice as well. You know, one of the, the deeper currents to my work is actually thinking about how power works. And particularly if you're somebody who has a lot of status, like I do, like I've just partly through birth, like, you know, straight, white, overeducated dude. Um, and then through some good moments of success, I've, I've got quite a lot of status. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm quite interested in going, well, how do I give most of that away? How do I be a good teacher but not necessarily be in the spotlight? And part of that is going, how do I not, how is it not just Michael monologuing mm-hmm. endlessly about mm-hmm. whatever? 
So part of it's, uh, you know, this kind of sense of a conversation between us is, is helpful. So I think we're in the right place. We're ready for a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll go down rabbit uh, rabbit holes if, if a few Perfect. pop up as well. I've got yeah. questions and things for us to dive into. There's so much about your work, key tactics that are, are so, so useful. But I'd love to, I guess, give a little bit of context around your story. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand from reading your bio that you were banned from your high school graduation <laughs> for the balloon incident. Yes. Tell me more. Yeah. It actually sounds much better when it's just this mysterious teasing line. Well, we can leave it at that if you like. Um, but I can tell. I mean, I can tell you because it it kind of connects a little bit to that conversation about power, actually, in in a slightly obscure way, but not really for me. So I live in Canada, but I grew up in Australia in Canberra, and um, had a very happy childhood. Went to Canberra Grammar School, which is the private school there in Canberra, and loved it. Like I really flourished there. But in my final year year 12, it was also the final year of the the headmaster who'd been there for 28,000 years. Mm -hmm. And the class before us on their final day of school had kind of trashed the place. I mean, they put glue in the locks and they put weed killer on the field saying, you know, F you or whatever. And I think they brought in a flock of sheep into one of the things. So they're like, they're like, (laughs) we're just going full on catastrophe because they didn't love their time at Camel Grammar School. And so we'd been pretty strictly banned from doing anything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm just not going to accept that. <laughs> and I also don't, I'm, I'm pretty law-abiding as a natural inclination, but I'm mm-hmm. like, but I need to, Our time I need to stir come. things up. Yeah. <laughs> so me and a, a, a bunch of also responsible young men, because we were all like prefects and house captains and kind of all of that kind of mm-hmm. English public school labeling. We had all of that. We, we literally just went and got a bunch of helium balloons and a helium container and the chapel we in the school had a conical roof and so we just filled the roof up with balloons. I mean, this is the most benign act of rebellion <laughs> in the history of acts what of rebellion. A rebel. I mean, I know. It's like, oh, you're so dangerous. You just put some balloons into a chapel. I mean, I know. I know. I'm like a young James Dean. But anyway, we got caught. And then we were subsequently banned from from graduating. And it was was such an interesting overuse and poor use of power by the headmaster and the the deputy headmaster in that school. Mm -hmm. And I really – that really rankled with me. I'm like, that is such an abuse of seniority and structure and power. Um, What did that mean to you at the time? Did you have that sense at the time? Oh, at the time, you know, at the time I'm 17, so I'm like filled with teenage outrage and, and, (laughs) I don't know, pseudo-anarchy or something around that. I don't know, like, but, um, so I felt pretty disappointed. But at the same time, I was also, even then I had, it's it's just my high school graduation. You know, I'm like, they look like idiots. Like, you know, I'd been a prefect, a house captain, and I'd won couple of prizes and so like they're banning all their the prize winners from their school graduation. it's like they're making it a mockery of themselves and then apparently when it happened you know when the names were announced of all the kids that weren't there they all got standing ovations for five minutes so it's also this idea of you know you and I share an interest in how change happens in terms of it's just not a great way to handle change like, power legacy yeah, exactly. what we're remembered for I know I was like Man, we just made that a whole lot worse for yourself by your overreacting. Let alone the importance of rites of passage as right. well, which is which right. is really exactly. what those kind of experiences are. 
that transition into that kind of next right, phase. It's like a ritual. It's a ritual. It's yeah. like you know a, a liminal moment of moving from one place to another. You mark it, you, and if you mm. can mark it in some way. But still, yeah. It's a great story. So your rebellion days. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about the uh, the pathway from Canberra to becoming a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. Well, uh, my dad is British and I was British. He died a couple of years ago and actually grew up in Oxford. Um, uh, his dad was the headmaster of the Moreland College School, which is a high school right in the heart of Oxford and it feeds choristers to Moreland College, which is one of the fancy colleges at Oxford. And when I was 14, a teacher at school had said, what do you want to do after school? And I'm like, I have no idea. I still have no real idea. I'm waiting for that answer to show up sometime. But I'm I, not sure someone turns up, but I, I still have this hope that they will. Yeah, exactly. like, yes, you chose right. And here's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm like, it still hasn't happened. But this teacher, uh, he said, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I think I'll go to Oxford University because it was all I knew. So my right. dad had gone to Oxford University. Yep. I admired my dad. I was like, why not? And he was like, well, ha, 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 um, you'll need to be a Rhodes Scholar. I'm like, okay, got it. How do I do that? And, and that kind of planted a seed. And I was already pretty ambitious and I liked being a leader and kind of taking those roles. But now I had a kind of a bit of a context and it wasn't an obsession, but, you know, I had a – we called it a prep book, you know, a place where you write down your, your homework. Mm-hmm. And I remember maybe 15, I actually had drawn the crest of Oxford University and coloured it in and stuck it into the, right. the book. And it, 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 it makes me sound more monomaniacal than I, I was. I wasn't kind of obsessed about getting into Oxford, but it was definitely an orientation that happened when I was 14. And then uh, at university, I thought I would take a crack at that you know, I did arts law at ANU, so that's a mm. six-year degree, basically. You, you spend your first three years doing half half literature, half law in my case. Then you do an honours year for me where I just did nothing but English literature, which I loved. And then I had two final painful years of law school because I was not a good student at law school. But in my, in my third year or fourth year, I think it was, fourth year, I guess, I was like, I'm going to apply because I'd done well in my, my arts degree and I'd been... I'd run the soccer team and captain this, and you know, I'd done a whole bunch of stuff. So I was like, I've collected tinsel and trophies and medals. I can make a pitch. Mm-hmm. So I went and asked the, you know, what the process was, and they said, well, you, you fill out the form. Everybody gets a first interview. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get onto a short list, and then we figure it out from there. I'm like, great. So I filled out the form, got some people to write letters. Fantastic. I got a letter back going, you don't even get a first interview. I was pretty. I was pretty gutted because I'm like she had literally said everybody gets a first interview, <laughs> and like apparently everybody except me. So I I licked my wounds for a year, um, but after a two year break, I decided to reapply. Mm-hmm. As a, a little more focused and a little more clear and a little more driven uh, to do it, and and so I made it onto the short list, which I was excited by. Mm-hmm. But then there were two incidents as that. Is this too much? Like, no. I'm, like I'm like, I'm, this, this no, is like I'm turning this into some epic thing. Yeah. Where like, <laughs> so far we're four hours into the interview and I'm, like, <laughs> and, and I'm still 17. Um, so two things happened that were, were helpful. One, actually, one thing happened, one thing didn't happen, both of which helped me do this. The first was I got really clear that there was no way I was going to win a Rhodes Scholarship on merit. Like I just looked at who was on the short list and they're all, they'd all won university medals. I mean, they're all really the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I'm clearly 
making up some numbers on this list. So mm-hmm. I, I made a decision, which is like, I, I need to be different mm-hmm. around this. So there's a photograph of all these young people and every one of them is in like a blue suit and a white shirt and a red tie if you're a man or pearls if you're a woman because pearls were the thing. And I was I had long blonde hair, I had earrings, I had a pink tie-dye tie. I was just kind of like, look, am I either going to come distant last or maybe you're going to pick the odd the oddball out yeah. around that. And then in the interview itself, there was one pivotal moment, which is which accidental but made all the difference. Um, you know, I came in and it was quite intimidating. It was like this big room, it was like oak panelling. In my memory, the ten people interviewing us, so it's ten people, it was a lot, they were all kind of backlit, like some like CIA torture room. So there's like these <laughs> mysterious folks. It was like, ah. Uh, Pixelated Yeah, faces. exactly. It was like, you know, like all the voices were chimed. <laughs> so it was a bit much. Um, and I sat down and the first person, they had some prepared questions for me. The first person said, so Michael, you've done uh, an English degree, you've done a law degree, and now you're proposing to do a PPE in Oxford, PPE is uh, politics, philosophy, and economics. Mm-hmm. They're like, so what's wrong? Can't you make up your mind? Mm. And I went, well, yes and no. And that was an accidental joke. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was making a joke, but everybody laughed around the table and it and it shifted everything. Suddenly I mm. laughed. I was smart enough to realize I'd made a joke. Yes. After everybody laughed, and so I went with it, and the energy lined up, and I could become more of myself, and so those two positive things kind of I think contributed to me winning the Rose Fellowship, mm. and also the fact that the, the night before you all go out for dinner, you go out to dinner in Parliament House in Canberra, so it's super posh. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in this private dining room. There are Fred Williams paintings all over the walls, and I, it's my favorite artist. So I'm like, oh man, this is fantastic. But it's quite tense because it's a highly performative experience, right? right. You're at dinner. Yeah. You're with your seven other people who are your rivals. Yes. There's a role you got to ten, play. ten of the people who you know are judging you. Yeah. So you're trying to be charming and intelligent and learned and, and engaging. And not drop your spaghetti. Exactly. <laughs> and you're like not not dominated and being an a hole, but also like mm-hmm. not being quiet and submissive. You know, I need my airtime as well. So you got all of that yeah. playing on. Yes. And I was like, yeah, I'm screwed here. This ever is so impressive. So my thought was I'm going to nick a teaspoon from Parliament House as my memento. You know, years to come as I'm a grey 50-year-old, I'll be able to go, here's a teaspoon from the time when I was a, I became a runner-up in the Rhodes Scholarship thing. Anyway, my need to keep performing, I, I ended up forgetting to nick the teaspoon, which turned out to be a great thing because as you leave Parliament House, you actually walk through a metal detector. <laughs> Because clearly they had other people <laughs> nicking teaspoons before. And that would have been a whole awkward Thing. conversation yeah. around, how did the teaspoon end up in your suit jacket? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, so that also helped me end up winning the Rhodes Scholarship. Fascinating if I come back to where you mentioned you're uh, interested in power and in some ways what you've described in that that experience is actually I can see that I don't have it. Mm-hmm. So what choices do I have? in these moments, whether like, it is to be different in that space. I, I've got, a, I've got a, a strong wiring forever to be a slightly disruptive force. Mm-hmm. Um, Where does that come from? It's not re- I don't know. You know, it's um, there's not an obvious, you know, childhood wound okay. or any of that sort of stuff around what's Michael playing out here. 
It'd I'm be like, good for the podcast. It if would there be was. good, exactly. You know, there was this moment as a two-year-old when a clown came into my bedroom. I don't want to talk anymore about it. Um, be interesting that that's almost hard. Like, yeah, I feel like it's it is hard pretty hardwired. hardwired. You know, mm. um, we had a dress-up box as kids growing up, mm-hmm. and we had a, the, the kid I played with was um, well, kids were a couple of girls roughly my age who were over the back, and they would come over and we play dress-up, yeah. and I would always win the fight to see who got to dress up in the women's clothes because the women just had more interesting clothes. Mm-hmm. So I always had this kind of like I quite like to show off in some ways. Mm-hmm. And my parents just looked at me for years they're like, who are you and where do you come from? Because mm-hmm. they're both more modest and shyer and less kind of seeking the spotlight things. And, you know, for years they were like, just going to wait for Michael to finally land in a pile of shit so he can finally learn his lesson to, to <laughs> calm down. But every time something would happen, I'd kind of somehow go, ta-da, <laughs> and it'd be like, Figure it'd it be out. fine. Yeah. So I'd have this kind of wiring to be a bit disruptive or be a bit different, try stuff out, be fairly undaunted by failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've had some great successes, but I've got this long string of stuff that hasn't worked. Yeah. But mostly I can just tell a good story about it. You know, even as I'm being banned from my high school, I'm like, I can see this feeding into the myth <laughs> of, you know, things I've tried and failed at. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, there's a muscle in that in being able to, I don't know, hold failure or success very lightly either way. Yeah. You see it as a good yarn. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that, that feels like it's been a learned skill. Like right. I was pretty – I think I was pretty competitive as a kid. Like I would – you know, this is, I don't remember the story, but the story's told around the family household that we're playing backyard cricket. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandmother over from Scotland was bowling. I hit a cracking shot. She basically, as a 70-year-old, threw herself, you know, five foot to the right, plucked a screamer out of the air because she was the most competitive person in the entire world. And I totally lost it. I threw the bat away, went off crying into the corner. <laughs> I was not good at losing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got good parenting around for my dad and my mum around how to hold winning and losing a little more lightly. What got you then into the line of work that I guess led you down the pathway of yeah. what you're doing uh, now? It's kind of a – I mean, you can – make up a story looking back, Mm -hmm. but it was mostly a random stumbling into the future. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the first thing is, so, you know, what what is my line of work? Mm. I'm not entirely sure myself, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, You know, in some ways, I've written probably eight or nine books now. I've started companies with training courses around them. Mm. I I give speeches and talk keynotes and that sort of stuff. But let me ask you, you know, what do you think I'm known for? You asked me in the car and said, like, how did you, how do you know me? Yeah. Uh, and that's such a great question, I think, because then that kind of put context. Yeah. So the context that I know you through is through the Coaching Habit, your book. Right. Um, and the the methodology or the approach around coaching. Got it. But you've got here, you've got, um, you've got the How to Begin book and you've got the new book, new book. How to Work with Almost Anyone. Yes. So you can see I'm, I'm trying to... I'm not just the coaching habit. No. So if you look at all of that, what do you think is different or essential about what I do? Or do you think it mostly is about the coaching habit and you've just got these other books there to be polite? Not at all. <laughs> no, it's a good question. Um, and 
what I take from it and what I've heard, I have I listened to your podcast interview with Dr. Brene Brown, so oh, yeah. I know you from there as well. And uh, I think it was it was almost and it's weird, isn't it, how you kind of have these connections? But there was almost a sense of, oh, he's Australian, he's one of us. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm really honest, yeah. um, which got me to kind of dive into some of your work. Yeah. So if I distill it down, and that sense of coaching is the ability to find things that are really, really complex, yeah. particularly the kind of work that we do in in corporate and, and around leadership around change yeah. and your capacity and ability to be able to bring the simple, the behavioural yeah. and the tactic in a way that really holds space to, yes, this is hard. I see that as, as kind of a, a core skill of yeah. yours. Thank you. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's probably true. And I ask it in part, I'm entirely selfishly, it mm. wasn't a test. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out a way of articulating this mm-hmm. myself, um, to myself and to my team and all that sort of stuff that you do. The line of work in some ways is being a teacher. And I think of the stuff I do, it is often trying to take human processes that feel hard and make them feel simpler and more feasible for people where they go, oh, I could probably do that. If that's what that is, I could probably take a crack at that. Mm. So it's like if that's what coaching is, I could take a crack at that. If this is what building psychological safety is, I could take a crack at that. If this is if, – if trying to figure out what my next big thing is, if that's what that is, I could, I could have a go at that. Mm. So you know what it comes to it? mind as yeah. you're kind of talking, it's uh, and again I'm gonna go to a metaphor, but it's providing people a map in right. the abyss of the unknown. Oh, so I'm good. not kind of sure where I am. Yeah. But but at least I've kind of got a map that orientates and can make that next step right. or the next pathway right. or the next thing that kind of comes to mind. So let me ask you a question mm. then, because I know you've got an interest in the unknown and uncertainty. Mm. What have you learned around what it takes to best navigate that space? Like for me, I'm like, I like to build a process so people go, oh, I can see the kind of steps forward into it. Mm. But what do you teach or, or help people with as you, as you kind of step into that space? What comes to mind, I guess, and I, we were saying this earlier, one of the things I've looked at and I know for myself or I've seen for others, when we have the unknown in front of us, uncertainty, we don't know what to do, it's really natural to kind of, uh, we want to hold control. So yeah. we hold things back. Yeah, the we lizard <laughs> brain is going back out, <laughs> back out and gain control immediately. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. and often that's a retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we can feel really stuck and get caught in a spiral of yep. going down. And the way out is actually to reach out, mm. to to expand. So even the... I even want to do it myself because I feel that feeling quite tight is just exhale (laughs) (laughs) to just sit in it. Uh, So there's some of the things I teach is really looking at three things. The first one is where can I be more curious around this as opposed to jump to judgment, which will often do in the unknown. The second one is actually counterintuitive in that it's useful to step into a challenge and it's often the very last thing that we want to do in uncertainty. But it informs us who we are and it can be the thing that we have control over and then the third one being community so who can I reach out to that whole six degrees of separation usually it's two or three yeah if we actually take the time to sit down and go I don't want to it's the last thing I want to do I'm in the mess I feel awful but when I reach out when I ask can you help me or what do you know or I'm stuck how do you help people reach out because 
um, when I'm talking about this new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, I, often I end on a call to action saying mm-hmm. be the person who reaches out Yeah, because, um, you know, the, the quote I heard a while back but it, I love is like nobody likes to be the first person to say hello but everybody loves to be greeted. Yeah. I'm like, that's so right. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I've just been moving my mum into a old person's village mm. and she's a bit shy and so when we're walking around it, I'm just saying hello to everybody. I'm like, hi, how you doing? They're like, oh, hi. I'm like, yeah, what's your name? And where you, what room are you mm. in? And mum's like, oh, my God. Who so is this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go back to Toronto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here I am. I'm on my way. I've been banished from my, by my mother now on my way home. But what have you learned around the curiosity and um, taking on a challenge mm-hmm. and reaching out mm-hmm. or steps forward rather than steps back? Yeah. How do you give people the courage or the bravery to do that? Mm, such a good question because you've <laughs> got to have the platform of having that, right? Right. Similar to um, we all like to be greeted but we don't like to be that. I've heard this statement that every relationship, and you absolutely touch on it in this new book, every relationship requires a hero at times. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And the repair question in, in, yeah. in your book very much goes to that as well as just instigating the keystone mm-hmm. conversation and we'll definitely get to that. Uh, so I think it's that um, what do I wish others would do for me and what if I took that first step? Right. I've had plenty of conversations with people saying, I wish I was part of a community where I could talk about this, right. this and this. Right. And yet the perfect community for you doesn't exist unless you create it, right? right. Because yeah. it's whether it's the business community or whether it's a, mm. like I wish I had somewhere that I could go and talk about finances or something. Yeah. Um, but they're never quite right because yeah. they're not yours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for me that's probably that front of mind reminder and often what I'll share with people is what would it take for you to, to craft that for yourself? Yeah. Like if you had to choose the five people to sit around with, yeah. Who might that be? Yeah. And is there anyone that you know who has done that before, has reached out, that you might be able to just just ask and say, yeah. you know, would it be okay? I'd really value this conversation. Yeah. But it does sound nice in theory. It's incredibly hard to do. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, there's a resource I love called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party. Mm. It's by a, a, an American called Nick Gray. And it gives you... Exactly how to run a two-hour cocktail party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those book titles where you're like... Brilliant. Does what it says on the cover. Does it give you the cocktail recipes as well? It, it, well, it, it, he says don't bother with the cocktails. <laughs> it's not so about the cocktails. <laughs> it's not about the cocktails. So his basic insight is people love to be invited to a cocktail party. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an increase in loneliness in general and yes. disconnection. Yes. And often we kind of know people a little bit and we're like, I'd like to know you a little bit better, <laughs> but I don't know quite how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I've been doing this, um, I've done this uh, three times now, I think in various ways in Toronto. Basic idea is Tuesday or a Wednesday, mm-hmm. seven to nine, guarantee that you'll be done by nine because part of why people say no is they're like, I don't want to be trapped in a cocktail party for, and on a weekday night. I've got a life. I need to go to bed. I'm now yes. old. Yes. Nine o'clock is already past my bedtime. I don't want to, I'm like, <laughs> so you, you, you invite your core. So you, you reach out and go, Hey, Ali, if I, if I had a cocktail party on this day, mm-hmm. would you be available to come to that? And yes. you, you say, yes, I'm great. So that's Ali. So then I set it up. I send out invites to my five core people. I get say, please RSVP on the form. So everybody can see that people are coming. Mm-hmm. Then I'll go to my next 10 people. So you have somewhere between 10 and 15 people, two hours. 
facilitated lightly. So there's a couple of times you bring everybody together and you do a quick question in and around the whole group, mm-hmm. which breaks up old conversations and resets it and makes people be interested in new new ways. Mm-hmm. And then at nine o'clock you say, you know, bugger off, we're done here. Buy some wa- couple of bottles of wine, a bottle of vodka, a ton of water, a few token chips and guacamole or whatever. And it's pretty effective. What like, if you learnt? Well, I've learned that people are really excited to, to come to a cocktail party. Mm-hmm. Like people are like grateful that, that you do that. I've learned that I need to structure things where I'm not the facilitator the whole time mm-hmm. because I shoot myself in the foot around going, I've brought all these people together and now I'm busy bring, making connections and hosting them. Yes. And I can be a good host, but I, I'm not actually making the deeper connections that I'm hungry for. Mm-hmm. I've learned that one of the things I hoped would happen is that I would be invited to more things and that hasn't happened as much as I thought it might. Yes. I'm like I've, I've now had 50 people over to a cocktail party. I did something else where I invited uh, me plus two other people out for dinners. So we'd go out and I'd structure a kind of questions and I'd like, I've done that, probably done 30 of those dinners. So I'm like, I've, I've invited 150, I've initiated with mm. 150 people. I haven't got a whole lot of, hey, yeah. Michael, why don't you come to my thing? Yes. So what I've learned is either people don't want to invite me to anything. More Let's than, assume that's uh, not the case. Well, <laughs> It's a it's a it's a pretty viable reason, <laughs> uh, so we won't take it off the table. Um, people don't have many. It doesn't occur to many people mm. to people don't have many things to invite people to, mm-hmm. and not, people aren't that good at inviting people who are not part of the the very core group of people yeah. to to new stuff. It's probably more just that I'm not a very good person to invite. Maybe not. I'm pretty sure that's it. <laughs> like, yeah. Now that we've seen Michael, let's not invite him to anything. <laughs> <laughs> we've got better guacamole yeah. over here. Exactly. Maybe that's it. Maybe, Maybe that's yeah. it. It's so interesting around that connection. It sounds good in theory, but it does require that key intention. Mm-hmm. I want to shift tack slightly questions what, away from how to host a cocktail well, party well, I, I, know. I love that we've <laughs> gone there <laughs> and i can't cook at all so i love that you also said just chips and guacamole oh, yeah. so i'm, like, I'm in on that <laughs> this whole book gives you all it gives you all the scripts on how to invite people and stuff mm. so it's very practical yeah and wow. this whole thing is as soon as you make it complicated everybody gives up yeah so here's the easiest way to have just a two-hour cocktail party fascinating it's, it's a good idea again it's the map Right. It's a map. It's a map. It's a very good map. Yeah. Questions are the tool of your trade. Yes. You are a master of questions. Thank you. It is what's dotted throughout the work that I've seen of yours. And then I think what it does is unlocks things for other people. What's the value of great questions? And maybe what stops people from daring to ask some of those great questions? Well, there's a few reasons why I think a really great question is a really great thing to throw into the mix. Mm. The first is that it puts the spotlight on that person. So it's, it kind of, I mean, I often say like it helps me be lazy in a conversation. A, because I'm an inherently lazy person. That's also probably why I don't get invited to cocktail parties. Um, but it's also, it's a way of calming down my need to add value, prove myself, raise my status, be the authority. It's a humble act mm-hmm. to ask a question. It makes you humble, creates humility, which is having you kind of have your feet grounded on the, on the floor 
would allow you to put your attention onto another person. Mm. And I think it is a great gift to try and see the person who is in front of you, have them be heard, have them be seen. Mm. Um, I often, well, often, I often enough talk about Martin Buber, and he's got this very simple model for two types of relationships in the world, I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. And I-it relationships are, the kind of, are a little more transactional and a little less human. I-thou relationships are where you've found that ability to be kind of present to your messy, brilliant fullness, which means you have to kind of have a sense of showing up in that way yourself, so a degree of vulnerability, talking about Brene, but also a way of being able to be present and curious about the, the other person in front of you. And most of us are so, you know that saying, I used to worry what people thought of me until I realized nobody thought of me. Because yes. <laughs> everybody's <laughs> worried about themselves, their, own, their yeah. things. So part of it for me is a question allows me to try and be more present to the other person. Mm. Now the dark side is that it allows me to be less connected with people in some ways because I'm harder to get to know because I'm very good at Deflecting, or, deflecting yes, or being yeah. curious about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always get very excited when I'm in conversations with somebody and they're, and they're like relentlessly good at asking me questions about myself. Partly I'm a bit slippery and, and, and anxious about it, but partly it's like this is really interesting because I'm now old enough and experienced enough to have an hour's conversation with somebody and mm-hmm. they'll walk away going, that was amazing. I'm like, that was perfectly interesting and I'm glad to have talked to you but you don't know anything about me yes. and you and you never got curious enough to ask and me. And I was able to deflect that enough. <laughs> I, and I would, yeah. I, or, or they just never got to it, you know, yes. sometimes it's not even deflecting. Sometimes it's like not realising that this act of kind of two people reaching across to each other to be curious about mm. the other person can be really powerful. So questions that help us, well they certainly allow us to connect with other people, right. that sense of then um, also being humble in a workplace environment, if I go to that context, it can be a real valuable tool for a leader where there's often can be that kind of power play yep. to sit in that question. And more and more with workplaces where we're working alongside, leaders are going, I've been told I need to move into coaching skills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you talked about, you know, that sort of being the kind of person that you wrote the coaching habit for. And they're going, I'm not sure what to do here. How do I coach? I'm right. not, what if I don't have the right answers? I need to be seen as the expert. Right. And the fear of, if I ask a question, what if they tell me the answer <laughs> and I don't want to hear? <laughs> like, exactly. It's easier to hold that, that connection. It it's easier to maintain authority by being, by, you know, distributing advice and opinions yeah. and solutions and not being curious. If a leader is going, okay, I'm, I'm interested in how I might increase my coaching capability, where yeah. would they start? Well, you know, often what's in, interesting if you're thinking of change is not what do you add but what do you stop? Um, you know, humans have a, a bit of a wiring to always go, all right, so if I need to be coaching, what do I need to learn? What do I need to add to my leadership repertoire, my leadership toolkit? And actually one of the really interesting places just to start is to start noticing how often and how quickly you don't ask a question but jump in and interrupt and give advice or feel the obligation to have the answer obligation to step in and give direction and give opinions mm. and just start noticing the patterns of behavior and so you don't even have to do anything other than just go you know, 
How many questions did I ask? How many opinions did I give? And start noticing you're like, wow, I I talk a lot. (laughs) I have a lot of things to tell people. And part of the power of questions for me is it often starts with me going, I just know far less than I think I do. My advice is mostly a bit shit. <laughs> even even the advice I think is really good. I'm like, ah, you know, all the stuff I know for sure, they can look up on Google much faster than me or just go, hey, chat GPT, tell me the thing. Yes. And all the stuff that I'm confident about, I'm, I perhaps should be more skeptical about my the quality of my, my own advice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I have a mutual friend in Jason Fox and, you know, his book is How to Lead a Quest. Mm-hmm. And there is something about... What if we were on an adventure together and, you know, the, the link between quest and question is pretty self-evident there. You're like, so where, does, where might this take us? So, you know, the power of – I'm going to come back to your question, which is like where would you start mm. if you're coaching? But part of the power of coaching for me, of being more coach-like, as I often talk about it, because, you know, most, a lot of leaders don't want to be a coach. And I'm like, great, don't be a coach. Yeah, You don't have to – wear that badge. You just need to be more coach-like. And the definition of that for me is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice a little bit slower? Mm. And, you know, it's like, so every relax, you don't have to start wearing caftans and lighting incense. (laughs) You just need to stay curious a little bit longer. And you you can still give advice and move to action, but just do it a little bit more slowly. That's so good. You can almost feel that going. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, there's a lot of baggage that comes with coaching. You know, it's like you have to be a people person to be able to do it. You can only ever ask questions. You can never give advice. You have Mm. to lie on a therapy couch and weep. It has to take an hour every time you, and I'm like, you know, I talk about the five reasons people resist coaching. First is like, I don't have time for this. Mm. Like I've seen how long coaching takes fancy executive coach shows up and goes into the office and or has an hour-long Zoom call. You know, I've got X number of direct reports. I don't have time for an hour-long conversation with each one of them. I mean, I'd love to, kind of, but I don't. I can't. I'm like, great, agreed. If you can't coach in five minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. Mm-hmm. I actually say ten minutes or less, but often it's five minutes or less. And they're like, well, that's delightful, Michael. But you know what? I still don't have time to coach because even if I could coach in five minutes or less – my schedule is full. Like I start work right away in the morning and I work late and I, and even if I have gaps in my calendar, I've got other things to do. Mm. And I'm like, agreed. If you think you have to add coaching to what you're already doing, nothing will change. You need to think of being more coach-like as transformative. So you're transforming what you currently do, not adding to what you currently do. Same interactions, just curious a little bit longer. So then the, the third thing is like, well, look, I don't want to be a coach. You know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer or I'm a marketer or I'm an HR person or I'm a scientist or I'm a salesperson. And I love that or I love it enough. I didn't sign up to be a coach. I'm like, great, don't be a coach. Be more coach-like. It's not a role. It's a leadership behavior. Then they go, but I don't know what coaching is. And then we give them the definition you know, it's like stay curious a little bit longer. And then the fifth resistance is one that is almost never addressed by an organization. And it's the person who you're asking to be a coach or more coach like you. It's like, what's in it for me? Like, 
organizations are like, we need you to coach people because our good people stick around longer and they do better work. And the person being coached is like, yeah, because it's better leadership. You know, you're more supportive. You see me, you hear me, you get me focused on the work that matters. So there's a really clear win to when you increase the amount of coaching in an organization at an organizational level and at an individual growth level. But the poor sucker you're asking to do all the work, (laughs) you're like, why why would they try and change their behavior in a way that's not easy? Because moving from advice giving to being curious is not an easy shift. It's simple, but it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Why would would they do that? I mean, what's the incentive? Because, you know, they're not that happy in the way they're working at the moment, but it's it's okay. And for me, I say, look, if you can be more coach-like, you get to work less hard and have more impact. So... If you would like to work a little less hard, feel less of the need to rescue your team, feel less overwhelmed by the work you're doing, find more purpose in the work that you're doing. But fundamentally, if you'd like to work less hard and have more impact, you should consider giving this curiosity thing a crack. And that there aren't many people who are like, I would love to work even harder and have even <laughs> less impact. So mostly you get some people interested. Let me be curious yeah. about this. Yeah. One of the things that can be, and we're here in organisations, well, certainly the, the role of psychological safety in order to step into some of these conversations. Yep. Some leaders might go, yep, well and good. I understand how I can be more coach-like. I can hold on to curiosity a bit longer, but I think people are going to be defensive and wary or it's just not like anything we've ever done before. Right. Uh, so there might be a fear around that. Is yeah. there a way or, where, you know, a couple of tools or strategies around how to increase that sense of psychological safety? Yeah. Well, I think people will feel like that. You know, you know this experience when your manager goes away on a training course. How are you? Yeah, and they come back going <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God. All right, if we just waited out two weeks, they'll forget all of this stuff and we'll just go back to, to, to normal. You've listened to a podcast, haven't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So part of the frustration that I feel, and maybe you feel this too, Ali, when you do this work is how hard it is to shift behavior mm. and how hard it is to shift a culture. Okay. It's like organizations are homeostatic. They resist change. You push into them, they push back. Mm. So this resistance is not just theoretical, it's probably real all the time. Mm-hmm. So a big part of uh, – one of the starting points is for me to kind of go – don't make such a big deal out of the coaching thing. Yeah. Doesn't if have to I'm be like, formal. Yeah. I'm like, hey, Ali, we've been working together for two months, but I'd like you to come into my office so we can have a coaching session. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? I'm busy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm busy. I'm dead. Anything. I'm hiding. And then we cu- you come in and I'm like, okay, so um, <laughs> what's on your mind? And you're like, oh, my God, what is what is this? Lunch. Yeah, Let exactly. Let me out of here. Exactly. <laughs> so... Sometimes I say, like, I'm, I'm child-free, so this is theory, not practice, but mm-hmm. talking to my brothers who do have kids, they're like, you know, young kids, they resist eating vegetables. They're like, don't want to eat the lump of spinach that mm. you've overcooked and put on the thing. And so what you do as a smart parent is you blend the vegetables into the, the spaghetti sauce and they're like, they don't even know they're eating spinach. Mm-hmm. It just tastes like tomato sauce and spaghetti or, you know, pasta sauce and spaghetti. So, like, for me, I'm like, make coaching just like an everyday way of showing up because it's not coaching. It's being coach-like. It's not a formal process. It's just staying curious a little bit longer. Mm. So 
you know, in the coaching habit book, I'm like, here are seven good questions. They're not the only questions, but you can go a long way with these seven questions. And the second question in the book is the and what else question. The best coaching question in the world, as I hyperbolically claim. And I love that AWE is, you know, spells awe. So I can say it's an awesome question, yeah. literally and yeah. metaphorically. And that question is like uh, when you realize that their first answer is not their only answer and it's really their best answer. So whatever question you've asked them, one of the small, subtle ways of being more coach-like is you go, great, what else? What else is the answer to that? And what's amazing is they almost never even hear you ask that. All they hear is you holding the space for them to stay curious. Yeah. You know, all they experience is you not charging on with advice or opinions or an action plan. You just have this moment where you're holding them just a little bit longer in this place of curiosity. So a starting point is start small. Don't make a big deal about it. Start with somebody who you think is most up for it. Yeah. You know, somebody who's like, you know, we have a good working relationship. Enroll them to help you. They're mm -hmm. like, I'm trying this out, I'm trying to give less advice. Can, you, can we set up a thing where you're like, you help me every time I move into my advice monster shows up? Yeah. Or pick somebody who's, uh, you know, you have a disastrous relationship with where you're like, it literally can't get much worse <laughs> than it currently is. So I might as well start asking <laughs> a few questions. The only way is up. <laughs> exactly. But, but it is also useful to understand the reality of, you know, how much safety, how much trust is there here? Mm -hmm. And going, well, what needs to be true for that to increase a little bit and adjust your strategies to that? Mm. Why is it, you mentioned the advice giving monster, why is advice giving the wrong approach? Well, it's not always the wrong approach. Mm. You know, there is a place for advice. You know, if, what's the name of our producer here? Uh, Nick. Nick, if Nick comes and goes, oh my goodness, the, the, the studio is on fire. Yeah. It's not a great thing for us to be going, yeah, and how are you feeling about smoke and, you know, inhalation, Nick? <laughs> you know, it's like we want guidance, we want advice, yeah. we want suggestions. Mm -hmm. So Daniel Goleman, who probably is best known for making emotional intelligence well-known, mm -hmm. um, he wrote a book, a, an article first for the Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. This is like 20 years ago, so 2000, I think. And he says, look, there are six different styles of leadership. Great leaders know how to use all six styles. Most leaders use two. Right, yeah. <laughs> and each style has its prizes and punishments. You know, there's a benefit to it, there's a cost to it. You know, so there's a place for directive leadership and there's a place for democratic leadership and there's a place for other types of leadership. The one he said was least used, even though he could see a strong correlation to engagement and profitability, was coaching. And he kind of said it's because nobody has time for that. So that's part of what I'm trying to solve in that. So what's the price of giving advice? Well, the answer is there's a, there's a time and a place for giving advice. What kills you is when advice giving is your default response to every situation. That's the pattern you're looking to break. You know that famous quote from Man's Search for Meaning, you know, in between stimulus and response is freedom. Yeah. So when the, the stimulus happens, you're like, question, advice, something else. And in that, you start expanding your capacity as a leader. Mostly when you're using advice as a default, there's a few things going on. You know, in, I have a TED talk on this, uh, on the Taming Your Advice Monster. I'm like, there are three types of advice monsters. There's tell it, save it, and control it. 
and you with your your background will know this better than me, but they're kind of speaking to three ego states yeah. that you're looking to protect. Um, and I've just turned them into a metaphor to make it kind of, because I'm not a psychologist, so I'm just making mm. the, the bridge. So tell it is like, I want to have the authority. I need to have the answer. I've decided that the way I add value is by having the answer. If I don't have all the answers to all the problems, I'm not doing my job and yeah. I'm a failure and I'm letting everybody else down. So you're like, this is how I prove that I'm valuable. Save it is that kind of great rescuer tendency, which is like, it's my job to protect everybody from all harm always and nothing uncertain can ever happen. And I will be the fierce sword that protects everybody all the time. And of course, I mean, one of my favorite models is the Tupman drama triangle, three dysfunctional roles, the rescuer, the victim and the persecutor. Mm -hmm. Rescuers create persecutors. Rescuers create victims. But you're you're like, I am failing if anybody is having a hard time at all. Yeah. And then the third one is this kind of controller, which is like, look, I don't want to give up control. I want to have my hands on the wheel. I don't want to let chaos arrive. Because yeah. if I'm not controlling everything all the time, the universe crumbles and chaos and all its mighty form and will appear. I've got appear all the and, proof. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. And... The truth is all three of those have origins and something helpful. Like it is helpful to go, I'm trying to figure out no answers. And it is helpful to be oriented to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And it is helpful to go, actually, I'm trying to impose a little order on the chaos of life. But when they become your default drivers and your default responses, suddenly there's a dynamic where you're really saying – look, I'm better and smarter and faster and cleverer and wiser and more experienced or younger or more vital than you. I'm better than you. Mm. So the, the deepest rhythm here is like, I'm better than you are. I'm claiming the space and the claiming the authority. I'm not allowing you to step into the, into mm. the light mm -hmm. and figure this stuff out for yourself. Because I like the certainty and control and the sense of virtuousness I get from... Yeah. Giving that's the answers. what you're looking for from me. That's what yeah. I. That's what my role is. And there is a place for advice giving. It's the default response to it. Mm -hmm. How quickly we move to it without even realizing we're doing it. That's the thing to try and become a little more aware of. Notice it for yourself. Yeah. There are definitely times that that can show up and go. Actually, what if I'd sat in it a little bit longer? Sometimes it could just be time. I'll just yeah. tell you what to do. I can't yeah, sit in here. So sometimes, that, and you, sometimes you, that's the reality. Yes. But it's. It's did you make that choice or did you just default to it? Because yeah. it can be really helpful. Like if if you come in and go, Michael, I've got this challenge and I'm like, Ali, I've got three minutes before I need to leave to the next thing. Mm. So part of me wants to ask you a question so you figure it out yourself, but let me give you my best guess now to the answer and that's all I can give you right now. So mm -hmm. I, want, I want to help you. I've made a choice about how to deal with it rather than just going, Whenever Ali asks, I tell her the answer. Yeah. But even in that, you're you're talking about I would like to ask a question. Yeah. So so recognizing that for the other person. Yeah. Let's shift now to your latest book, which is sure. called uh, The title is amazing. It's it remarkable. Is <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, everybody listening, we were talking about this beforehand, which is like the quest to name a book uh, is is ruthlessly difficult. I mean, you spend nine months writing a book and nine months also trying to come up with the name of your book because in five words or less, you've got to somehow summarize the problem and the solution and make it sound interesting and make it sound different. It's so you've brutal. nailed this. I have. How to work with almost <laughs> anyone. <laughs> yeah. So much I want to dive into this, but let's start with the almost. Yeah. 
What does he almost tell us? Well, it. what does it tell us? What does it tell you? It's, and I think this is part of the genius in the, in the title, but there are people who go, oh, so I don't have to be, it's not exactly. the Pollyanna effect, right? Yeah. This, it does hold space. It's not always going to work all the time. No, everybody's got a, everybody's got some almost people in their lives where you're like, I don't want to work with this person. They're a sociopath or they're a nightmare or we're just never going to, it's never going to work. And I'm like, that's great. Whoever those people are, I get it. That leaves everybody else. That's still a lot of people. And also, how could I write a book called How to Work with Anyone? I mean, does that feel believable to you? It doesn't feel believable to me. This, I would pick up a book called How to Work with Anyone with a sneered lip yes, and a yeah. rolled eye because I'm like, you're blowing smoke at this stage yeah. because nobody knows how to work with anyone. Yes. But I'm like – But almost anyone. But almost anyone. Yeah. And the other promise in the book is not how to make every working relationship perfect. It's not mm-hmm. one, of, one of those relationship books where you see two couples – backlit against a Mm. Gold Coast sunset or anything like that. It's like this is about how do you work with the hard people, how do you work with the people who are kind of whatever in the middle, how do you keep the brilliant working relationships as good as they can be for as long as they can be. It's like how do you maximize the potential in all of the key working relationships you have so that, you know, some of the bad ones become bearable as mm. an example. And you wrap that up in uh, – it's a really great kind of almost stake in the ground to say it's the best possible relationship yep. and that will be different, that will be varied based on the right. context, based on, yeah, your intention around that where the unbearable become bearable. Maybe that's the best possible yeah, relationship. Yeah, I mean you and I would have a, have a certain amount of potential in how mm. we work together. So if we were plotting and planning something together – we're like, so what's the best version of this look like for you and me? Mm-hmm. And then if I'm doing it, I'm going, you know, after this, I'm going to go hang out with my friend Phil. And if Phil and I were doing it and, you know, we met today. Yes. I met Phil when we were three. Yes. So we've known each other for 52 years. This is a whole bunch of different things. The in possibility the mix. Then right, quite in the different. Mix. Mm. But if I was working with you, like if you said, Michael, I've got this idea. We want to co-host a podcast together. Mm-hmm. I'm like. Okay, maybe. And you're like, so how how should we how would we work together if we were doing a podcast? Because what's tempting is just to start talking about the podcast. What's it gonna be called? What colour is it gonna be? Exactly. <laughs> Who do we have as guests? Are we gonna have guests? Yeah. Are three cameras enough? Should we get a seven camera we set need that up? Drone. <laughs> so it's like a matrix thing. You we could do bullet time. Yeah. We could call it bullet time. Suddenly I mean I'm like so I love rush, ideas. Rush yeah. to the ideas without pausing. Yeah. And we're like, what you know, when you've had a really good working partnership. What have you learned? You work with your husband. Mm-hmm. Like I worked with my wife for a while. Best of times, worst of times. Mm-hmm. You know, like when it's good, it's magical. When it's bad, it's brutal. Yes. Right? So I'm like, so what have you learned about the best of times working with somebody like you? What do you do? What do I do? What, you know, what does the, the other person do? You know, what is the, what's the best of that look like? And when you've when you've had really hard working relationships, when you're co-creating something. What have you learned from that? I mean, this is the the basic idea. In the book, there are questions and other exercises and well, stuff. Well, let's go to some okay, of those. Sure. Like you, you've, you've got these five questions yeah. with the aim of getting to the best possible relationship. Yeah. Can you unpack those five? Sure. So the key idea of the book is have a conversation about how you work together before you start working um, or 
if you're already working with the person, stop for a moment and have a conversation about how you want to work together before you resume mm. working. So that's the key idea and, the, and the, the key tactic. And then in the book, there are like, here are five helpful questions perhaps. Um, there's the amplify question, which is what's your best? There's the steady question, which is what are your practices and preferences? Mm -hmm. There's the good date and the bad date question, which is like what can we learn from past successful relationships and what can we learn from past frustrating relationships? And then there's the repair question, which is how will we fix it when things go wrong? And what you're doing in this is creating an exchange of information. So you actually, and it kind of comes back to what we were saying before about questions allow you to see the other person. Mm. Rather than just making up a whole bunch of stuff, like I met Ali today, so I don't really know her, but we're, we've name dropped people that we know together, like Brene Brown and Jason Fox. She's wearing a kind of cool leather thing. I'm wearing a holy blue sweater <laughs> because I tore a hole in it coming up here. We've, we, I'm wearing a pearl necklace. She's wearing stylish jewelry. So we've already made up a whole bunch of mm. stuff about each other. You know, we've found connection, we've got questions. And what this does is like, let's actually get more nitty gritty about what's true about how we operate in this world. Yeah. Um, because I just don't know. I mean, I could make stuff up at you, mm. but I just don't know. And same, that's true for me. But how often that happens in workplaces, right? right. The it's assumptions. Like every single speaking. moment of every relationship, yeah. which is like, okay, we're going to get on with the work. Yeah, okay, I get, I get it. All yeah. right. Yeah. I, I kind of get already... a sense of who you are. Yeah. Some of it's bound to be right. Let's, let's click on. Mm. And this just gives you a chance of, you know, the three attributes of a, a, a BPR, a best possible relationship, is it needs to be safe, needs to be vital, meaning alive, mm -hmm. and it needs to be repairable so that when it does get dented, it has a chance of being fixed. And this exchange of information, everything from, like, tell me about when you shine and when you flow. Like what does that what does that even look like? You know, what are you doing? Who are you doing it with? Do you find that people are able because some of those require some thought, right? Yeah, I mean, this honestly, this is a bit of a self help book, cunningly disguised as a business book, mm. because every one of the five questions has three exercises connected to it, designed to help you find better language and deeper insight as to well, who are you actually? Mm. Because the more specific you can be around stuff, the more helpful that is for you and for the other person. So, yeah, there are sometimes when, you know, when I'm teaching this, I'll often teach the first question, the, the amplify question, what's your best? And, you know, the, the sub-questions on it are when do you shine and when do you flow? The flow state, mihei, chiksem mihei, this Czech psychologist with a very long, complicated name. Um, or when you shine, it's kind of you've seen the other person kind of lit up and in their zone. Yeah. And some people, when you go, well, tell me about that, they're like, I can tell you exactly about that because they've been doing this self-help, self-discovery stuff forever and they're like, I'm glad you asked. I've been waiting my lifetime for to somebody to, yeah. to allow me to talk about that. And lots of people are like, I can make some stuff up, but I don't really know. So I'm like, great, so let's get into it. Let's take some guesses, start articulating that because you need to go through the crappy first draft version of when you shine and when you flow before you get a more nuanced response to it. And, you know, we're, we're obviously sitting here in Australia. Some of that is a bit un-Australian to kind of talk about. Yeah, it's when, a bit, it's a bit un every culture yeah. in the world, quite <laughs> frankly. I mean, yeah. last night I ran a webinar for you know, 200 people in Finland. Mm. And I don't know if you, have you ever been to Finland no. or taught in Finland? 
So they're pretty wired to be quiet and slightly introverted. You know, there's a joke. I, I, I went there when Nokia was a big thing and I did a bit of work for them. And I told them I was heading up north to teach in Lapland, some of the engineers. They're like, oh... And then they told me this joke. You know the difference between an introverted Finnish person and an extroverted one? The extroverted Finnish person looks at your shoes rather than their shoes when they're talking to you. <laughs> so when you head up north where everybody's really introverted and they're all tech engineers and they're all in, in a big theatre and I couldn't even see anybody's eyes, I was like, this is, this is the quietest group I've ever done because I'm kind of like interactive yeah. and performing and I'm like, I am dying here and then afterwards the manager was like i have never seen them so engaged that was amazing i was like okay <laughs> so nailed it <laughs> all of that to say it's I don't not th- comfortable i don't think there's a single to... culture in the world where they're yeah. like i am just delighted to start telling you about how awesome i am yeah but i, I mean in the context of being able to say how do i shine and in the context of saying i just want to tell you how when i light up so that you can work better with me it's not in the context of let me tell you how awesome I am just because I want you to feel small. It's not about being a blowhard or a blackguard. It's it's a it's a I'm just trying to tell you this is me at my best because I'd love to hear what your you are at your best and if you know what I am at my best, we've just got a whole lot of information that's mm. going to give us a better chance to really zing. What what are you at your best? Uh, for me, how would I answer that? Mm. Well. There's a few different answers I have for that. One is being a teacher. So I'm pretty good with a cr- teaching a crowd because I'm a good facilitator and I have moments of being funny and I'm quite playful with the group and I can often read a room and kind of meet the energy where it needs to be and kind of tease people a little bit, but not in a way that gets too much. So that's a good moment, like particularly when I'm in a room. That's one of the ways I'm at my best. Um, one of the ways I'm at my best is when I'm in a room by myself and I'm trying to find the, the, the shape of an idea. Mm. You know, all, all of the, the books you've got in front of you here, before I wrote any real words, for each one I just went through sheets and sheets of paper of just drawing boxes and trying to find the shape of what I was trying to write and teach. And... You know, when I look back on it, I'm like, I've just written the same thing you know, like 280 times. I was like, it was ridiculous how many iterations and repetitions it took me. But it's like I'm just trying to find mm. the clearest arc, um, the, the, the cleanest expression of what this idea is. And as I'm sitting here, like, you know, this was a part of that conversation. I'm going, oh, so even the language around shape and space and time right. and and you um, being able to sit with that on your own, then I right. can understand that yeah. and go, great. Yeah, because, I mean, this is vaguely ironic, but, you know, for me, one of the ways I work well with people is not working with people. Yeah. Like, meetings drive me nuts. I'm terrible in, in meetings. And I spend quite a lot of time just me in a room by myself mm-hmm. with bits of paper sketching stuff out and I really like that that's not the whole thing for me but it's a big part of it for me and and that will be surprising to a lot of people because people think I'm far more wanting to mix it up with other people than I, than I probably am so that becomes so insightful as an amplifying starting right. point the second question is the steady question yeah where does that kind of guide a conversation so it just talks about the mechanics of how you work because we 
we've all developed you know, micro habits and micro preferences and there's so much technology, so there's so many different ways of doing everything that it's really helpful just to go. Like, here's a question I should have asked you and I didn't, which is, do you prefer Alison or Ali? Hmm. Like, I don't know. Yeah. And I've got it in my head that it's both of those. And there's a tiny bit of me, it's like, every time I say Ali, am I annoying her? <laughs> because I don't like to be called Mike. I like to be called Michael. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a, like I have a complicated uh, – it's not that complicated, but it becomes complicated. Yeah. My surname is Bungay Stanya because when I got married, I took my wife's surname. We didn't put a hyphen in it. So it's an invisible hyphen. So, A, the length of it freaks people out. They're like, how do you pronounce it? I'm anxious about it. Mm -hmm. B, it gets misspelt all the time. So like, Bungay Stainer is a classic – Michael Banging Spaniel is the best one ever. I'm like, I don't know how you came up with that, but it's a, it's good. I, I acknowledge that. And I'm like, so it's Michael, it's Bungay Stanya. Now we talk about what our pronouns are. Mm -hmm. You know, I never did that 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It never even crossed my mind. But now it becomes one of those things where I'm like, it's actually helpful to go, yes. you know, what I, do you want to tell me what your pronouns are? are? Are they different from what's going to be obvious? Right down to things like, you know, I have an assistant, luckily, and uh, – we use Asana, the project yes. management yeah. tool. And so uh, Claudine will often end up putting things for me to do in my Asana. Now, years ago, I worked with a guy called David Allen who wrote Getting Things Done, kind of one of the productivity gurus from 20 years ago. One of his lessons was every to-do should start with a verb. Otherwise, how would you know what to do? If there's not a doing word in the thing, it's not a to-do. And now I am weirdly touchy about that so anytime I get a to-do without a verb I'm like spit the dummy throw the whatever on the floor I'm like this is ridiculous so Claudine knows that so mm. and that's what comes out in questions like this which is like how do we do this how do we interact you know if I'm sending you emails on a Saturday what does that mean do we make it up yeah these are so important questions they're um ones that you know, occasionally, not always, I haven't done it perfectly, but we've done it well with, with our team. And I have my version of Claudine is Tracy. She's the greatest EA on the planet. Mm -hmm. And anyone that I rave about her to, I'm like, you're not allowed to steal her. <laughs> <laughs> and Tracy's not even her real name. <laughs> you're right. like, it's just the pseudonym right. that you put out when you talk about this <laughs> other person. Yeah, exactly. She's remarkable. Uh, and she's, she already knows she's on the lifetime con contract because she knows my life better than I do. Yeah. And, uh, and we've had over over the years been able to have some of those conversations but even a little bit like Claudine right. one of the things she said if I send you a text I just need to know that you've got it so I don't exactly. calm I don't sleep unless you give me a thumbs up yeah and exactly. that's all I need the moment I know that and every time I do it I'm like oh I'm helping her exactly and I know it and it's really clear and right. she's not frustrated so by it there's all these little ways of doing kind of I think of it as micro tears in, in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And none of them are fatal. Like, it's not like when you don't give a thumbs up to Tracy, she's like, uh, I'm definitely resigning now. Plus, I have all these offers from all these other people. Who, <laughs> <laughs> so I can take my picture. Like, Tracy, you could double your salary somewhere. You just need to ask. Um, thumbs but, up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but it's like the fewer micro tears you have, mm. the less repairing you need to do, mm -hmm. the, the more robust it, it keeps yeah. going. So you're like... Yep. I just know these things. Like some people I work with, I'm like, it's important for me to ask about their child. 
mm-hmm. and and have that conversation. Some people they're like, I'd rather you didn't because I'm like I'm private and I want to crack on with other stuff. Yeah. Yep. And so you just figure some of the stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. The third and fourth question, and we've touched on a little bit just around when, um, what relationships, the, yeah. the best and worst um, date questions, uh, when it's gone well, what does that look like? When it hasn't gone well, what are those frustration yeah. points? Basically, can... you're, you're noticing that the patterns from the past repeat again in the future. Mm. It's really annoying. They get a little more subtle perhaps as you become more adept in your own life, but it's, it's, it's one of those patterns that it's like the same basic stuff the same dysfunction and the same function keeps showing up. So rather than hiding it, why not talk about it? Like when I sit down with people and go, let me tell you exactly how I will screw you over in this relationship. <laughs> because I've done it with every relationship so far and you're mm-hmm. not going to be an exception to that. Mm-hmm. This will be the pattern. It'll start like this, it'll go like that, it'll go like this. Mm-hmm. Here's how you manage me through this. Mm-hmm. So for both of our sakes... So I'm, I can be really articulate about what it means to work with me. And, you know, for the people who I work with, they're typically people who I've hired because I've got two small little companies, so they're interacting with me in some way. Mm-hmm. So it means that I've got a lot of authority and power in that. So there's something really powerful in the degree of vulnerability, if you want to use that word, or just kind of openness around that, around what it gives permission to, to do. I also send people to go and talk to other people who've worked with me. It's like, go and talk to these people about the reality of working with me. Because there is also a truth that sometimes when people show up, they're a little bit, oh, this is great. Michael's, I've heard him on a podcast and mm. he's, he sounds so nice. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I am nice, but I'm also complicated and unreliable and mm-hmm. you know irritating at times as well and so you need to find the reality of that and but the good date and the bad date question is like you've experienced really hard relationships talk about those share what's useful often what's interesting with the bad relationships is to talk about how your role in that so often with bad relationships we just want to blame the other person it's like i was this flawless paladin of nobility <laughs> And they, and they were, were just unreasonable. This, they, were, they were the <laughs> opposite of that. And you're like, you probably had some role in that. Yeah. So what was your role in the dysfunction? Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the good relationships, talk about the other person's role. What did they do to make such a great relationship with you? It's counterintuitive. It's not our natural bias. Mm. Our natural bias is we take more credit for the good stuff and less credit for the bad stuff. So we're just flipping that deliberately. One of the big aha moments for me in reading this book was this realisation you said that this conversation works best when you're both sharing. And so often you've got those five questions and we talked before about the power of questions but also the kryptonite of questions means that you can become unknown (laughs) and you've got a lot of information about the other person. That's right. And so this aha of going actually – it's so important for you to be open and share. Yeah. There are components where at times I'm not the like, best in relationships. I know for me personally, I'll go quiet. I, I disappear, yeah. which means I'm absent. And actually there's power in the absence, right? Exactly. Like yeah. I can hold that, which is un- completely unfair for the other person. Yeah. But that, that requires uh, yeah. a two-way, two-way street. I mean, the, the origin of this work for me is from a guy called Peter Block, who's one of my favourite writers his shadow is over all of my stuff. Mm-hmm. And he talks about something called a social contract, which is a version of this idea of a keystone conversation. 
I, I didn't love social contract because it's a bit abstract and it's a bit legalistic and are we talking about Hobbes and philosophy or talking about something else? But the insightful word in that is contract because a tr- contract, I mean, I finished law school being sued by one of my lecturers for defamation, so don't take anything I say about law to be accurate. But I do remember that a contract is an equal exchange of value. Mm-hmm. The two of you are trading something with each other. And if this is some form of a contract between the two of you, there needs to be an equal exchange of information. So you need to ask and answer mm-hmm. so that there's a sense of, and this kind of connects back to the power thing a little bit, which is like this is actually a way that hierarchy gets broken down a little bit mm-hmm. because there's this human exchange. The keystone conversation is is what you talk about in, in terms of this being the space and place you might ask those five questions or at least provide the opportunity to have a, have a conversation. How do you prepare for, and you've got so many great resources and tools, but if someone's yeah. listening going, okay, I'm interested, I've heard some of those questions, I'm going to mm-hmm. tap into the book. How do we prepare for a keystone conversation? Do yeah. you do you let people know? Do you ambush them? You, with totally, them? you totally ambush them. You're like they just walk in on the you corridor and make you sure your seat's close to the a room door with a very bright light. And you're like, here's a question for you. <laughs> We're not going to leave until we've got the BPR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, the generic answer is a bit kind of jazz hands vague about it because yeah. it depends on you. It depends on your context. It depends on the other person. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, you want to have done your work so you've got some idea of what the answers are to the questions. You want to have given them every chance to have done some work as well. So the more you could sort of say, hey, this is not, gonna, this is not meant to freak you out, but I would love, I'm, I, I'm excited to be working with you. And I've just learned it's useful for us to have a conversation about how we best work together mm-hmm. rather than it's just – what well, the temptation is, is just to plunge into the work. So I just like to have like a, a, a conversation, maybe 30 minutes around just figuring out how we best work together. So that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. You're mostly trying to reassure the person that this isn't some weird intervention. It is actually a slightly weird intervention, but you're trying to pretend it's not. It's not about performance. It's not about, it's not so about that performance. Can be the other it's, fears that come it's up. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. like, I just would like to make this work as best as I can for you. But you could say, look, here are the five questions that I typically ask and answer. So I'll be thinking about my answers to this. Mm-hmm. If you want to have a think about some of your answers, that might be great as well. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to give people choice. You can be more directive, but every time there's prizes and punishments to being more directive. You're like, here are five questions. If you had to prepare one of them, I'd love you to prepare this one and that one. Or maybe if, to, if it's like for me, if it's like if you had to prepare just two of them, I'd love for you to prepare the first one, who are you at your best, and the, and the last one, how will we repair it yeah. when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you see fit, and in the book there's kind of assorted scripts and stuff that you can kind of so use and such adapt. Such great resources for, for at yeah. least to be able to see how that language might come together right. to pull it together. There's another kind of point that you make in there and it frustrated me and liberated me at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and that was... You don't have to solve anything yeah. from these conversations. Yeah. And there is a part of me wanting to know that it's worked well, that I've done it right, that I've yeah. been exceptionally good at it and that it's it's fundamentally from that day on changing everything. And that it was almost like, God damn, Michael, <laughs> what do you, what's the point then if there doesn't have to be an outcome from it? 
Yeah. There is an outcome. Mm. The, the outcome's happened. The magic is in having the conversation. It doesn't have to finish with a nice, neat bow in the moment. What you've done in having a keystone conversation is given you both permission to keep talking about the relationship. Mm -hmm. You've said we both care enough about this relationship that we might come back to it and check in on the health of it. Mm -hmm. That's the win. That's the win. All the stuff that gets said is in some ways kind of like helpful information, but it's it's the it's secondary. It's, the, to it's, the, it's, the, it's kind of almost secondary. Mm -hmm to I'm signaling that this working relationship between us is really important and I'm willing to come back to it and ask about it. Now, obviously it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're like, I have a keystone conversation and then we get into a fight and we never resolve it. And it's like, so I say that because it doesn't always work, but it often does. So it's like, don't get disheartened when you like, you, you do all this work and it's like, oh, I didn't quite, it didn't turn this into a miraculously brilliant relationship. Mm -hmm. But you're just giving yourself the best chance to have a relationship that is fulfilling and useful and engaging for you and offering that to the other person as well. Maybe even if it's slightly more productive or I've got a bit more of an yeah. insight uh, and awareness. What would be your encouragement if someone says, I just don't think there's any point. I feel like I've tried certain things and I, I just don't think... It's going to go anywhere. Nothing's going to change. Yeah. Well, that might be true. So that might be one of your almost people. Mm -hmm. And I, I think when people are listening to this conversation, there are some people who go, yeah, that for these two people, we sh I should probably do this because that could be fun and it could be helpful. Mm -hmm. And it tends to, I think people tend to be a bit black and white about it, on or off. And it tends to be quite a lot of people who get lumped into the, I, I don't think I should bother with this. So it feels a bit hard or a bit awkward or you're not totally sure how it's going to go. And what I hope is people will take more of a gamble on some of the maybes. Like I, I'm fine, I, it's called how to work with almost anyone. So I appreciate there's going to be some people where you're like, you know what, this person is terrible and I hate them or it's just not worth it or they're self-absorbed or whatever the reason is, you're like, I just don't want to, build that relationship. But, you know, there's a, a relationship writer called John Gottman, The Seven Secrets of a Successful Marriage is his classic book. And I, I read a statistic from him, which is helpful because his stuff is very research-based. Um, he said 70% of all issues in relationships are perpetual. They don't get fixed. And I find that a very optimistic number for two reasons. First is, I can stop trying to fix the 70%. <laughs> it's taken me a very long time to realize that that 70% is not fixable. It needs to be lived around and managed around and solved as a, this is the dynamic. So yeah. how will we now live with that dynamic? Uh -huh. Like, you know, and on a personal level, you know, my wife and I have been partners for more than 30 years, married for almost 30 years. And we've just got some ways of behaving where I'm like, be irritating and it will be this way until one of us is dead. You know, <laughs> I will go, hey, do you want to try this new restaurant? And she will say no. That's just what she does. She's like, why would I go to a new restaurant when I can go to an old one, which I know will be great? And I'm like, because it's new and because it's different and because it might be amazing. And even if it's not, it'll ha we'll have a story to tell. Mm -hmm. She's like, nope. <laughs> and so, I want the reliable. <laughs> exactly. So mm -hmm. we, we both know that dynamic mm. and we both know how to then – come to a conclusion that 
often we will not be going to that restaurant. But occasionally we, we get to go to the, the new restaurants. So I think it's optimistic because for all these people going, what's the point? I won't bother. Mm-hmm. My guess is you're actually looking at the 70% of the stuff that won't change. And you're like, great, it won't change. And you get to figure out a way of working around it that might be more optimal. And it also says there's 30% that might change. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 30% that can be fixed. And what a conversation like this might do might help you solve some of the 30%. It doesn't have to, you're not trying to turn it into a unicorn burping rainbows. You're trying to make the best possible relationship with that person. If you can just make it 5% better, it might be worth a slightly awkward 45-minute conversation. One of the things we were talking about before, not only what you put in these books, but it's also what you take out of it. What, is, what isn't there, um, and I think it's really, I find it really useful as well, is that it's not necessarily going, this is all the things you've done wrong to date. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there any risk of that happening inside of these? And what, what do we do to be mindful of that? And keep it back to, I guess, the future orientation, which is really what you're saying around the best possible relationship. It is. That's a good question. I haven't thought about that. So I think there's every danger that a conversation like this can go off the rails fast. And so there's a way that if you decide to have a keystone conversation, you want to match your vulnerability to the context. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've had a tough working relationship with this person for two years, you don't want to go, you know what will really work? Me being extremely vulnerable about this. Or it might. You know, it's like one of those choices you make. Every choice you make is prizes and punishments. So what you decide to say or not say, those are all choices. And you're kind of going, I'm taking a guess as to how this might play out. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely a way that this could just not be a success at all. It turns into a bit of a kind of finger-pointing you said, I said, you did, I did sort of thing. So you might go, if I'm really sure that's going to happen, maybe I shouldn't have this conversation. But it might be interesting to say, so what's, what's the one question I would ask that would give us a chance of it being helpful? You know, you could say, hey, you know, Ali, we've been working for a couple of years, had our ups and downs around mm-hmm. that. And I noticed that you and I occasionally end up kind of butting heads a little bit or in conflict. I thought it'd be useful for us to have a conversation about how do we fix it when things go off the rails with us? Because I think we're going to be working together for the next couple of years. And for me, it would be really helpful for us to figure out how to get back on track as fast as possible. So I'm wondering if you'd be up for a conversation where we just throw out some ideas and see if there's a a way for us to get back to where we want to be more quickly than we're doing at the moment. So So valuable. That's a, a really limited version mm. of, of this kind of keystone conversation and it's a more selected of what, what's really possible, what's worth going for here. Because even if the person's like, you irritate the hell out of me, they're like, it would be good if we found a way back to working more easily, more quickly, except for the people who are like, actually, I like the dysfunction. I like the drama. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not interested in that. The majority of times there's going to be yes, I, you know, I think there are things that we can yeah. do and let's let's actually yeah. see if there is a common ground if there's just around one, that. If you get one good tactic between the two of you, mm. which is like, you know, let's agree to do this. Yep. If this has happened, let's have, a, let's have a safe word where we're like, oh, we're doing the thing. Yeah. Do we want to just take 10 minutes to cool down so we, we break the cycle a little bit? 
That could be a huge win for both of you. Takes the heat yeah. out of the experience yeah. as well. I can imagine that the energy that you bring, the state of mind that you bring to these conversations is just as important as well. Yeah. For yourself when you've stepped into, whether it's these keystone conversations or conversations around relationships, what might be some of the, the tactical tools that you use to navigate your own energy? Or even while you're kind of travelling or in yeah. the work that you do, what do you do to, to manage your own energy to be able to turn up at your best? Yeah. It's a great question. I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been helping my mum move out of the family home into a kind of care home for the last two months. And um, every time I would walk over to see her, I'd feel a certain melange of emotions, Mm. all of which were shiny, happy ones. And so I've I've been thinking about that and kind of practicing it for the last two months. The first is... I've got a number of things that go through my mind. The first is to understand that people respond to the strongest signal in the room. So my job is to be the strongest signal in the room and to be a signal of generosity and kindness and presence. People have mirror neurons in their brain and they the chemicals in their body will quickly match the chemicals of the person who has the strongest energy. Mm. So be that person and be generous and kind and open about it. So that's part of what I do. And I use some very kind of physically based stuff around that, everything from having my feet on the ground as much as possible, that kind of groundedness. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a very in-my-head person. Mm-hmm. I'm not that good at somatic wisdom, but I try. And one of the tactics I, I learned from a friend of mine called Mark Bowden is just where you put your hands. So I, I typically have my hands at my belly button, I, even when I'm sitting, like this whole mm-hmm. interview, I've kind of had my hands down here mm-hmm. because it's a way of having my body in its calmest, most open space. Mm. Here's a, a TEDx talk. His name is Mark Bowden, B-O-W-D-E-N, and he has a great TEDx talk about this and just how your position of your hands makes all the difference to the energy in the room. Yeah. It's a company called Truth Plane. Then the third thing I try and get really clear on is what do I want? Like, if I know what I want in a conversation, it just helps me orient to remembering what the game is I'm playing here Mm. rather than getting distracted in the drama of it because there's always drama to distract you from it. But this idea of what's the one thing that I want from this interaction, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be a tangible takeaway. It could just be I just want to be as generous and as present as possible. That helps me manage my energy around that as well. Yeah. So important to kind of be in our body, but also just that. Yeah. What do I want to bring to this, and what's right. the signal that I can bring? Yeah. For for other people and the power and the influence of that. How to work with almost anyone? Best book title, phenomenal. <laughs> uh, we will put links, but how can people connect and follow some of your work? Well, if you're interested in the in the new book, how to work with almost anyone, bestpossiblerelationship.com has a download of the questions and also a video of me conducting a Keystone conversation with Ainsley, somebody I work with. If you want more general stuff, my website is mbs.works. So that gives you a doorways to all of the books and all of the kind of free stuff in all of those books. And you can find my social media stuff there and as well if you're keen. Love this conversation. I'm going to come to the final question. The name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. Mm-hmm. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think what, what it comes to mind for me is, this is taught to me by a woman called Madeline Blanchard, who is 
kind of connected to the Blanchard, the famous Blanchard family. And she had been a, um, a stage performer before kind of getting into the world of coaching and all of that, what, that good stuff. And I remember her giving a talk and she said, make sure you step into the spotlight. She said half the problem is with performers is they don't know where the spotlight is and that they're, they're like only half lit. So whatever the spotlight is for you and whatever the stage is that you're on, it's like get into the spotlight so that you get to stand out. Whatever the, the stage is, yeah. whatever that is for you. I love that, that sense of stepping into the spotlight. Don't be half lit. Yeah, exactly. Don't be half lit. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least two meanings to that, but yeah. This has been remarkable. Thank you so much, Mike. Of course, my pleasure. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Pally Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.